So, folk, thank you for um, being in on the seminar here again with me this afternoon. And uh, I just, again, consider it a great honor and a privilege to be able to share with you and to do the, the seminar with you. And also to do the input in the main session this morning and the seminar yesterday. It's a great honor and a privilege to be invited by John and Debbie and the team to, to um, teach at this conference. So as we get going with this seminar, I'm just going to, again, first and foremost, acknowledge the presence of our King. So Lord Jesus, we gather and we meet in your presence by your indwelling Holy Spirit. We honor you, Jesus. We lift up your headship. We adore your kingship. We just, just lift you up and want to see you, Jesus, for who you really are and fall in love with you ever more deeply and follow you ever more closely. Jesus, you are our heart's desire. We admire you. We respect you. You are truly beautiful. So we just want to say, pour out your spirit upon us, King Jesus. And let your Holy Spirit teach us. Holy Spirit, give us, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to understand the vision of Jesus and the kingdom. And to transform us from inside out. We trust in you, Holy Spirit, in this seminar to give me the words that you want to speak to everyone and to help everyone to receive and have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying at this time to all of us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Great. So for those of you who were um, in on the main session this morning um, on YouTube, you heard me speak again from, from Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, and I'm going to just follow up on that again in this seminar now, focusing in on spiritual formation and mission. So once again, the key text that I've used for all three of my teachings or inputs at this conference, and let me read it again. Then the 11 disciples went to the Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in the heavens and on the earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the context of my three talks is summarized in these five points on this slide, which for me is a, a summary of this text in Matthew. And I spoke about it this morning. It was the basis of my talk this morning. So I'm just going to give you the summary to get it clear in your minds. And if perchance you didn't hear my talk this morning in the main session, this is just a very brief summary. So it begins off with visionary worship. 
when they see Jesus, the risen King, before or as he is ascending into heaven, before he ascends into heaven, they see him and are overwhelmed and they fall down and they just worship him. So the vision of seeing Jesus for who he really is leads to the surrender of our hearts at the deepest level. And as I keep saying, the phrase that goes through my heart, the only adequate human response to God's self-revelation in and through Jesus of Nazareth is complete and total surrender of our will to his kingship, his lordship in our lives. That is worship. And everything is born in this vision and worship of the king. Whatever follows comes out of that first step. It leads to commissioning, commissioning authority or collaborating authority. And I've referred to this, that uh, Matthew's phrase in Jesus's mouth, all authority in the heavens and the earth has been given to me, is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7 and the culmination of all his his self-designated usage of the Son of Man as his messianic title. And so the Son of Man is given all authority in the heavens and, and the earth, and he gives that authority to the new humanity that the Son of Man embodies, the saints of the Most High, the redeemed and the born again. And we collaborate with the risen King in his authority to go into all the nations and make followers of Jesus, disciples. And I've said the word disciple is a disciplined learner. The Greek is matitis, the the, the, the Hebrew Talmud disciple or, or Talmudim disciples, and Dallas Willard has popularized it by, by, by using the word apprentice. And a disciple, apprentice of Jesus, is a person who commits to, to live with, to learn from, to become like. And that's what discipleship to Jesus is, and that's what... We are called to be disciples and then to go and make disciples. And we can only make true apprentices of Jesus to the extent we ourselves are apprentices of Jesus. Then we have authority in real terms that affects change in people's lives around us. Otherwise, it's just notional authority where we speak one thing, but we live another thing. And actually, it doesn't make any difference. We make disciples of ourselves then and not of Jesus. So when we go make disciples, we make them through participating baptism, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I've used this phrase to plunge them into the, into the reality of the Trinitarian God, which is essentially about participating in the divine nature of God, living the life of the Trinity here on earth. And that leads then to transforming character, the transformation of our character to teach, train the, the apprentices of Jesus to obey everything that I've commanded you, says Jesus. And the million dollar question is, how do we do that? And this is missional spiritual formation. And then that ends up with the assurance of the empowering presence. I will be with you at your elbow, at your side, in you by my spirit. Jesus' presence with us is the empowering Holy Spirit within us and through us until 
we have accomplished the Great Commission. So to become more specific now in terms of spiritual formation, so we make apprentices, disciplined learners of King Jesus to live his kingdom life, the kingdom of heaven here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's exactly the essence of the kingdom that Jesus taught us to pray. That's his definition of the kingdom. Pray that God's kingdom will come from heaven to earth, that, which means that his will will be done here in this piece of earth, that piece of earth, that piece of earth, until the ends of the earth, as it is in heaven. And that discipleship in the life of the kingdom is essentially in its four missional dimensions that I spoke about yesterday in the seminar. And I'm just again summarizing it. It is intentional apprenticeship or spiritual formation in power encounter because the kingdom always comes first and foremost with power to change us. That leads to personal transformation, discipleship and spiritual, personal spirituality, then social transformation, discipleship or spiritual formation and engagement in society to transform society for the king's sake, and then world missions, church planting and evangelism. And it's a package deal, as I emphasized yesterday. We can't get into selective obedience, which is human nature. I like this one. I don't like that one. That's more my temperament. It really is very difficult for me. <laughs> it's a package deal. We are not let off. You can't choose one over against the other. It's essentially spiritual formation in the holistic big picture vision of the kingdom and the essential missional motivation of the king and his kingdom. So all spiritual formation is missional. And uh, the human heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? And we have so many mixed, mixed motives that I will mention and talk about. But we need to really get, get into the missional motivation of the king and his kingdom in our spiritual formation. So Jesus did not pursue his own spiritual formation, which was his 30 hidden years in Nazareth, of preparation for three years of ministry. Imagine that, eh? Ten to one. <laughs> three years of ministry and 30 years in growth and preparation in spiritual formation in order to be on the public stage. Uh, he was off the spot, hidden with God for 30 years to be on the spot, speaking in God's name, modeling the kingdom for three years. So he did not do those 30 years of spiritual formation for selfish reasons and a sense of self-fulfillment. And we are called to follow Jesus in his life calling and his destiny, which was his kingdom, mission, and ministry. And it was literally to save the world. So therefore, to emphasize spiritual formation is not selfish, as in for my sake. The Western evangelical cultural gospel is very much the feel-good gospel, which is all about me, myself, and I. It's about my well-being. I must get to heaven. My sins must be forgiven. I must feel good about myself. I must be healed. I must succeed. It's the gospel of success, prosperity, popularity, good reputation, even admiration. 
And for some of us, it's the gospel of heroics. Be a heroic leader for Jesus. <laughs> Let me tell you, <laughs> all of those mixed motivations of the heart are so far from the king whom we claim to follow. Our king is the suffering servant of Isaiah who gave his life away in selfless service and his spiritual formation was intense and profound over 30 years to give himself away for God's purpose and God's kingdom cause on the earth, literally to save humanity and the cosmos. And we now enter into that, the life and calling of the king. And our calling is his calling. Our life is his life. Our formation is his formation in us and through us for his purpose. So it's all essentially, it's missional. So Jesus's model and his means and his motivation is selfless love of God and the other as he taught in the great in the Great Commission. So this statement then is what I'm now going to focus on in the remaining time, is that uh, it's essentially the spiritual formation of love, which is the model of Jesus. It is the means, the enabling of Jesus, and it's the motivation of Jesus in our spiritual formation. So let me emphasize again, we can only make disciplined learners of Jesus, spiritually forming them towards Christ-likeness, to the extent we ourselves are his disciples, or else we lack real authority. Um, you know, it's the lived example that is far more powerful. Who we are is communicated to people, not what we say we are. And how do we make disciplined learners uh, or, um, of Jesus? by two simple steps in the Great Commission through baptism and teaching them to obey. So baptism, as I mentioned in the talk this morning, is Christian baptism that Jesus initiated, Jesus' baptism, was essentially um, an initiation into discipleship whereby we join the community of the kingdom, Jesus' followers, through his death, burial and resurrection. It's immersion into the death of Christ, whereby he died my death for my sin. And in his death, I die to my sin. In his burial, whereby my sin and my past life and my old nature is washed away and buried. I rise in his resurrection through baptism to my new nature, to the new covenant, to life in the kingdom. We are born again as new Adams and new Eves in a new garden of Eden to take the new creation to the ends of the earth. That's, that's baptism. But it's not a once-off initiation. It is to be lived daily. The reality of that baptism is to be lived daily, which essentially is daily dying to self, daily dying to my old nature, and daily rising to my new life in Christ. And that new life in Christ, as Jesus explains it. We baptize disciples, followers of Jesus, initiating them into apprenticeship in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned this morning, the Hebraic understanding of, of calling person a name or naming things is to describe their nature, their character, their essence. So to be immersed 
plunged into the, the name of the Father. It's the character and the nature of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And as Dallas Willard literally says it, it's to be plunged into the reality of the Trinitarian God. And as the Eastern Orthodox theology of the Trinity, the perichoresis, it's to actually participate in the divine nature, to enter into the life and the love of the Trinity, the life and the love between the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit. And so St. Augustine, in fact, 300 AD, St. Augustine of Hippo was famous for, for saying, when you have love, you always have three, three elements. There is the one who loves, there is the one who is loved, and there is love itself. And the Father is the lover. The Son is the beloved, the one who is loved, who returns love to the Father. And the love between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit. And so Eastern Orthodox theology, in terms of the, the Trinitarian perichoresis, is they call the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love, as opposed to Western evangelical Pentecostalism, where the Holy Spirit's always referred to as the power of God. They refer to it as the love of God. In fact, the power of the love of God. So just to say, initiation into apprenticeship is entrance into the life of God, the life and the love of God. And how do we live out that, the meaning of our baptism daily, and live into and live out the reality of the Trinitarian life of love? It's by teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the second step that Jesus gave. And the question, of course, is what does Jesus really mean by that? <laughs> and how do we actually obey everything he commanded? How do we do it? And so this is what Dallas Willard calls the great omission in the great commission. We omit to teach followers of Jesus to end up obeying everything Jesus commanded. You might say, is that possible? Is that realistic? <laughs> yes. I take Jesus at his word. I'm a believer. I believe Jesus. It is possible. Jesus does not command us or ask of us anything that he does not give us the power or the means to live up to it, live into it, and to live it out. And let me explain. So, dear friends, let's not make converts or good church members. Our entire mission in following Jesus is to be disciplined learners who passionately apprentice ourselves after Jesus and therefore to make disciplined learners of Jesus all around us and to end up teaching them to live God's kind of life, which is natural, easy obedience to all that God ever required of humanity. So how do we literally obey everything Jesus commanded? So it means two things. What did Jesus command? And of course, if you do proper uh, hermeneutics interpretation, you, you're going to stick to Matthew because we are working from Matthew's Great Commission. So in the book of Matthew, what did Jesus command? And if you took a, a blue or green marker and read the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end, you could highlight every single command that Jesus 
infers or implies or actually overtly instructs and you will it'll be an interesting exercise and the second question is how do we obey those commands all of them everything so let me start with number two and i'll come back to number one so we i have four options in how do we actually obey jesus's commands the one is I, I guess the most common is, is simply by trying. We try to obey what Jesus commanded. So in the moment when I need to obey, when I'm being tempted or there's a conflict, then I try hard just to do what Jesus would do and to obey him. And that, that exercise of trying to obey him when we need to obey him routinely fails. Um, and and a, a, as an example, when Jesus predicted that he would be betrayed by one of the 12 and that he would suffer and die, Peter got very upset and said, no ways, Jesus. Uh, I won't deny you. I'm not going to betray you. In fact, I will even die for you. And Jesus said, yeah, 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 Peter. <laughs> I hear you. I'm praying for you that your faith doesn't fail because Satan's going to sift all of you guys. And, uh, and then, of course, when the crunch came, Peter was unable to obey Jesus when he needed to obey Jesus. He denied Christ three times. In fact, Matthew's record is he first denies Christ. Then he actually um, 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 takes an oath and, and, then, and then he calls down curses upon himself uh, that he's speaking the truth. It is a progressive degradation into ultimate self-cursing i mean that is like extreme dallas willard says we are all willing to do good but we are ready to do evil because the governing inclinations of our heart are often still set to our corrupted lower appetites our evil desires our sinful nature the old dead and buried self that still is very much alive and if we don't put to death the old nature and transform the inner governing inclinations of the heart we will find that whenever we try to obey jesus and do what is right we will in inevitably end up tripping and and failing because from inside out we still are controlled by the wrong governing inclinations of the heart exactly like peter and you know between you and me it's fascinating with peter even after the resurrection when he was restored back to leadership and even after pentecost 15 years down the track in ministry paul had to publicly rebuke peter um, in uh, um, antioch when peter came up there and he actually withdrew from table fellowship with Gentile believers because of his Jewish racism, because Jewish believers came from Jerusalem, and Peter then went and sat with them and withdrew from the Gentiles, and Paul publicly rebuked him. You know that Jewish pride of Jewish nationalism and racism was very painfully exorcised. It took a long time, and Peter in that area of his life was still not redeemed 
He was willing to do good, but he was ready to do evil when the opportunity presented itself. So by trying, in the moment, we will find that we predictably fail. The second one is accepting that we do fail. As often as I try, I end up failing and I fail and I've got to ask God to forgive me. So then we accept living in defeat and we just call it brokenness. I'm just a broken person. And we pretend we're very humble and we try and we repeatedly fail. So we, we give up and then we live and we, we trust and rest in God's forgiveness of grace. We live with relative guilt, unresolved stuff, just trusting in God's forgiveness and grace. And that is actually a very sad condition. And it's often excused by Christians. It's just my brokenness. And we don't believe we can ever actually be fundamentally transformed. The third option is theologizing and rationalizing it away. It's not literally what Jesus meant. That's legalism to obey his commands. We're now under hyper grace. <laughs> so don't worry. As long as you're saved in your spirit, it doesn't really matter what you do in your body. It's a form of Gnosticism. Um, and, and the fourth option is not by trying, not by giving up and not by rationalizing it away, but by training. And training essentially is progressive transformation in Christ's moral character that enables us easily, naturally, routinely, predictably to do what Jesus would do if he were us. To obey God whenever God requires of us. It's like Jesus from eternity as the son to eternity said, Father, <laughs> not my will. But your will be done. It's my joy of love, of returned love to you, Father. It's my response of gratitude and love. I live to please you, not my will, but your will be done. Simply because of your love for me, I love you. I want to do all and everything that you want of me. So Jesus naturally, easily, predictably, obeyed everything that the father required of him so likewise with us and it's what Dallas Willard has called the way of indirection to become the kind of person who eventually ends up naturally easily obeying everything that God has commanded let me explain what that means when Jesus is teaching them to obey it's the Hebraic rabbinical model of teaching which actually is training Teaching in, in the um, yeshivas, the learning schools of the rabbi by the disciples, was, was information, teaching of the mind, of truth, and the formation of the will to live that truth. So they didn't separate between teaching and training. It was one and the same thing, with the emphasis on you commit to, to live with, to learn from, to become like, so that you live the kind of life that I'm living. So training, therefore, can be defined as entering into or, or engaging spiritual disciplines, spiritual exercises that indirectly enable us to do what we cannot otherwise do by direct immediate effort. So by direct immediate effort, trying to obey God, we will find that we routinely fail. But if we go into spiritual training and formation, we build up the moral muscle, the spiritual 
character to end up eventually obeying and doing what God requires of us. So as an example, I was an athlete when I was at high school and I ran the 100 meters um, in uh, uh, 11 seconds. And my goal was to dip under 11 seconds. Do you think that by trying, by direct immediate effort in the moment, getting down at the starting blocks and running and sprinting 100 meters, by direct immediate effort in the moment, would I be able to achieve my goal? The answer is no. I've got to become the kind of person who has the fitness to actually run under 11 seconds. So going into training and practice, they indirectly enable me to achieve what I cannot otherwise achieve by direct immediate effort. I hope training is clear in your minds what that means. So Jesus then describes the kind of good person, and he also talks about the bad person, the bad tree, and the good person, the good tree, which comes from the new heart of the new covenant, or a corrupted heart, whether it's the old covenant under Jews, or whether it's the corruption of pagan and idolatry worship. But the good person with the new heart of the new covenant who lives life in the kingdom, that person naturally, easily ends up obeying God's commands. So in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, from verse 20 to 48, Jesus starts off by saying, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you, you won't enter the kingdom of God. And the question is, what is Jesus talking about? And he's talking about the new heart of the new covenant that transforms us from inside out to become the kind of person who will never end up murdering anyone. You've heard you mustn't murder. But Jesus says it starts way before that. If you have any unresolved anger in your heart, the end result of that intention of the heart is the outward act of murder. So the transformation of the heart is if there's any anger at any point, you go resolve the reason for that anger. That's called reconciliation. You've heard you mustn't commit adultery, but the people of the kingdom become the kind of person who cut adultery off right at the root so that there is no outward fruit of lusting, uh, of engaging in illicit sexual relationships. So you, you, in the heart, start right there. And so he goes on and describes six antitheses. You've heard the Ten Commandments says this, but I say this, and he describes the kind of person who ends up even loving their enemies. And who ends up, he ends up, verse 48, Therefore, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. <laughs> and he doesn't command us to become someone that he does not enable us to become. So, Immediately after chapter 5, verse 48, when he describes the kind of kingdom person with the new heart of, of the new covenant, he then logically teaches spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices. He starts up in chapter 6, verse 1. When you give, verse 6, when you pray, verse 15, when you fast. And three core spiritual practices for Jewish piety. And Jesus says the way you practice these is important for spiritual fitness for life with God. 
The way you practice the spiritual disciplines can transform you to become the kind of person I've just described who obeys God at every turn from the heart. And it's not by, you know, white-knuckled determination and effort in the moment. <laughs> it's just instinctive, ethical, and moral conditioning that overflows in the knowledge between good and evil, right and wrong, in the moment when you need it. And so that is of ending up obeying everything that Jesus commanded. So what, what did Jesus command? And I said earlier, if you take a, a marker and you highlight in the book of Matthew all the commands of Jesus, you'll quickly, you'll end up coming to Matthew 22, where Jesus spoke about all that God ever required of human beings is summarized in the law of love. The Shema Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because love is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So the essence of all of this, everything Jesus commanded, is, is love. And what I'm simply saying, what I believe Jesus is saying, it's the spiritual formation of love. And if you and I learn to live a life of love, just as Jesus loved, we will become the kind of person that obeys everything that God ever required of human beings. Love fulfills, is the fulfillment of the new covenant and the will and purpose of God on earth as it is in heaven. So among the commands in the book of Matthew, I wanted to highlight one important one, and that is where Jesus said, go and heal the sick, raise the dead, raise the dead, which is the easiest of all the commandments. Wink, wink, say no more. Heal the sick, raise the dead, drive out demons, cleanse the lepers, go and rebuke covid 19 out of people's bodies in the name of the Lord. Don't do it presumptuously and raise false hope. But when prompted by the Spirit, obey what Jesus is, is saying to you and walk on water and go do it. So among all the commands is power encounter is the mission of the kingdom. And of course, Matthew chapter 10 is a whole chapter on Jesus's teaching of the mission of the kingdom. And there you see the spiritual formation that is missional and not self-centered in terms of see how spiritual I am. And I'm just such a wonderful person, uh, which is really the spirit from the other side. So therefore, spiritual formation in the love of God incarnate and modeled in King Jesus is always missional. It is the self-sacrificing love of God uh, love for God and of God for others. So how do we always obey? Uh, uh, rather, how did Jesus always obey his father? And so I'm just closing with this last thought, and then I will switch the PowerPoint off and we'll have um, Q&A. But just to say, among all the scriptures in the Bible, this is one of my most, my, my most favorite texts in John chapter 15. This is the secret, if there is such a thing, to Jesus' life of obedience to the Father. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. 
If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my father's commands and I remain in his love. So the secret to Jesus' spiritual formation was the love of the father. He is not teaching a theological concept that God loved him. He had, he, he's speaking from psycho-emotional, subjective experience. As the father has loved me, where the father said, you are my son, you are my beloved, my agapitos, my specially dearly loved one. And I'm so pleased with you, my son. As the father has loved me, Jesus' subjective, personal experience of the unconditional love of the father formed him into that love so that he embodied that love in return through obedience to all that the father required of him. Then obedience was natural and easy because of the kind of person he had become. He was living the love of the father in returned love to the father and in love of other human beings who were the very image of the father. And so that is the secret for us, is to the extent to which we truly see Jesus for who he really is. And we fall in love with that young 30-year-old rabbi from Nazareth. And we are moved to the very core of our being to become like him because of his intense and unbelievable suffering love for broken humanity. We want to be like him. And that changes and transforms us into the moral character, into the spiritual fitness and the muscle to rule and reign with God in this life and in the life to come by always doing all he ever commanded of us. Thank you, dear friends. So I'm back with you out of the PowerPoint, and um, we have q and uh, The first question that I can see as far as is here is Rod. How do you know God's love? So Rod, in a number of different ways, and once again, forgive me for referring to my writing because I can only give a few comments here to be fair to others. But in my book, Doing Spirituality, I speak a lot about the spirituality of love and how we know God's love. So in chapter one of that book, I share my own journey as a follower of Jesus from my conversion and my progressive life of my relationship with God, my spiritual formation. And there's a long section of how I came to know God's personal love for me and the exercises, four specific exercises that I entered into to personally and subjectively appropriate and receive and feel and experience and believe the, the unique personalized love of God for me. So maybe, um, uh, Rod, I need to just leave it there. We can personally know God's love. The fact that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you, Rod, in itself tells you God loves you besides anything else. The way God's people who are closest to you love you is, an, is in part an incarnation of God's love for you. So enough there.
Michael Munson says, when we think about love in that it is a law of love, how do you develop a biblical worldview of that love and not of the world around us? Especially when to some people, groups, the, that biblical love can seem to be the very opposite of love. And how do you explain it to others who do not agree with that biblical worldview? So, Michael, if I'm understanding you correctly, I think that uh, we need to do what the very first followers of Jesus did, the apostles, who wrote the New Testament books in Greek, but were all Jewish followers who, who thought in Hebrew, but wrote in Greek. And they chose an ob the least used word in the Greek language for love, agape, out of, out of the other three prominent and common words for love, storche, family love, filio, friendship love, and then um, eros, passionate, erotic, romantic love. And they took a word out of Greek and they filled it with their own messianic, their own messianic meaning as model in Jesus, and they preached and taught that throughout the Greco-Roman world. And we need to define what we mean by love as defined in the incarnate Jesus um, in the New Testament and actually live that kind of love as opposed to Hollywood love, as opposed to love is feelings. Love is, is just um, the cultural pressure to just agree and say, if God is a God of love, he allows people to do whatever they want to do and uh, become whatever they want to become. Uh, so love has been so redefined through human brokenness, we need to reassert a biblical New Testament definition of love um, through our own lived lives example and then to teach it. Uh, I hope that that helps and answer your questions. Did you ever run under 11 seconds? Ha! <laughs> Henry, I did. My fastest time was 10.8 seconds in my last year in high school. Uh, Jim Cronin, Alexander, thank you for such a rich set of teachings. How would you explain relationship between spiritual formation which we might see as a focus on character and what some call spiritual authority, like, for example, operating words of knowledge, discernment, and Matthew 10, 7, 8 works. And is there a scriptural basis for growing in spiritual authority? So, Jim, interesting question. And uh, I wrote a paper uh, in the last year for the Australian Vineyard Leaders Conference, where they asked me to speak, and they asked me to speak on authority dash kingdom leadership in an uncertain time. And I wrote, I, 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 in, prep, in preparing for my talk, I, I, I ended up writing a paper. It's, it's six pages, but it's actually all about kingdom authority and leadership in what kingdom authority really means. So, um, Jim, if you ask Michael Munson for my email address, or Tim, uh, I will email you that paper. In fact, I think I sent Tim the paper, and he can send you the paper, which will help, hopefully, answer your question. Hey, Alexander, this is such a great teaching. How would you encourage us to teach this stuff to young people? 
what do you think would be the most effective way? So Ezekiel, Ezekiel, the man who stepped out of the scriptures. Um, yeah, look, the big challenge for us, the big challenge for us here at this time in this generation of the church is to translate the message of Jesus and the kingdom in accessible terms to the younger generation. Not in watered-down truth in any way or form, but in relative accessible categories and idioms and metaphors that are responsible to the kernel of truth, but are accessible to the postmodern mind. So that is a massive challenge. And uh, I think that youth leaders, youth pastors, and uh, I am a little bit of the older generation. I'm still young, 39 years old. <laughs> But um, that is always a challenge. How do we teach this kind of stuff, which is so rich and life-transforming to the younger generation so that they really are captivated with the vision of Jesus and that they truly, truly fall in love with him, that their hearts are ravished by his beauty. That I pray for. That would be a wonderful thing. So, Whatever that means, Ezekiel, we need to find ways and means. And Mark um, Crosby, uh, who works with multimedia within Vineyard, UK and Ireland, uh, is on the cutting edge of all the social platforms and multimedia, and perhaps guys like that can help uh, to answer that question. And maybe one last comment. Ezekiel, the most effective way what do you think would be the most the most effective way is the extent to which you live the reality of what you believe about Jesus. And as young people see your lived life and who you are, believe you me, it will transcend all words and concepts and they will just want to come close to you and, and just receive from your heart and your spirit and become a little bit more like you because they see Jesus in you. It's like Francis of Assisi. He, he told all of his followers, by, preach the gospel by all means possible. And at the, in the last re resort, use words. Live, in other words, live it. Uh, uh, yeah, amazing, Michael. Uh, Michael Munson, thanks, Michael. You've put up that document on authority, kingdom leading. I appreciate it. Joanna Gresti says, how do we find the healthy balance for investing in our personal spiritual formation and outward looking expression? Again, very important question. I love these questions. So, Joanna, I, <laughs> I always keep referring to things, but I was asked by the, the Nordic Vineyard Leadership uh, to do two inputs at their conference in March that's coming up. It's also online. And one of them was about soul care. And there I, I also have written a paper on it, which I'm willing to share that paper. I highlight the, the rhythms in the life of Jesus of engagement and withdrawal, engagement and withdrawal. And I look at the pattern of how we need to, be engaged in ministry, 
leadership, family, work, but constantly withdraw for solitude and silence for spiritual formation and soul care. Because if we give out too much without the renewal and formation of the source of our authentic energy, then we acting out in our body or giving out eventually that which we don't have. And that's called burnout. Burnout is living out of your own energies by engagement in, with people and work and ministry. And you have lost the reservoir of spiritual love and life, which is the formation of your heart and soul. So there is this important rhythm of engaging and withdrawing, engaging and withdrawing, and it's never either or. It's always both and. And the more I engage, the more I realize how much I need God's presence and power and love in order to engage effectively because it exhausts me. Therefore, I withdraw. And the more I withdraw and work on my spiritual formation, the love of God out to share what I've experienced there. And then I find I need more. So there is this continual rhythm. I hope that that helps you, Joanna. Um, Lynn says, can I also have access to that paper too, please? So Lynn, if it's the paper that Michael Munson has put up there, um, then you can. And I'll ask Michael if this paper on soul care, um, if Michael emails me, I can send him a link for people to, to get that as well. Uh, let's see. Neil, could you share a few tips toward becoming a church who actively and intentionally makes disciples that make disciples? Hey, buy a donkey, Neil. Uh, here is a South African compatriot who I guess is being anglicized. God bless you and have mercy on you, Neil. <laughs> to answer your question, um, Dallas Willard has this wonderful question that he kept posing. What plan do you have as a local pastor and as a local church to disciple all your members to eventually end up obeying everything Jesus has commanded. How are you going to address the great omission in the great commission? And so for me, it does come down to plans, practical strategies, what Wimber called a five-year plan, a particular philosophy of, of ministry. And for me, the essence of local church is the formation of apprentices in the four missional dimensions of the kingdom that I spoke about. So again, one can actually talk about some specific points. And Neil, let me just mention one or two. It is always primarily one-on-one -on -one type coaching and mentoring um, throughout the church. It is small group work. It is program work in terms of coursework 
um, that people go through and small group shared life and formation and one-on-one -on -one coaching. And then it is always on-the-job ministry engagement where you coach and you form and mentor people while they're on-the-job evangelism or intercessory prayer or healing ministry or social engagement in terms of working for justice, etc. So I hope that those few quick ones help you. And Helen says, yes, please. Okay, so Joe de Toy, Joe is your, is your work, Evada said Afrikaner. How do you deal, how do you deal with when talking about obeying Jesus's commands, the constant hippie, we're under grace and don't have anything, and don't have to do anything, steering away from legalism, but keeping the main thing, the main thing. So Joe, yeah, I understand. Look, I think that the so-called uh, hippie license, you know, li license, which is anti-legalism, but it actually results in licentiousness, permission to live a loose life, loose morals and whatever, is, is a false gospel. So the hyper grace or extreme grace teaching that sometimes is associated with it, etc., is just an overreaction to Protestant legalism in the name of the gospel of grace. And the famous quote is the unfinished work of Christ on the cross. So it's got certain merit and certain truth, but it's deeply mixed seed. And the fruit of wrong doctrine is the way people live their lives. So if like in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, where Paul poses the question, so therefore, shall we then continue in sin because grace abounds? I mean, it's all about grace. So therefore, don't worry. You can just live the way you want to live. And Paul says, no ways. In fact, in his Hebrew mind, he would say, oi, vey, no, no, that's not going to happen. And then he talks about the fact that we have died to Christ. We are risen with Christ. Therefore, put to death daily the deeds of the flesh and live daily into the new creation who you already are in Christ. So we must just teach that spiritual disciplines and spiritual exercises does not deny um, um, yeah, grace. Let me turn it around. Grace does not deny effort but grace denies earning. In other words, grace says you cannot earn your salvation, but grace actually involves human response, which is effort. And if grace is authentic grace, it motivates us to put an effort to become spiritually fit for life with God. It's when we use spiritual disciplines to earn brownie points from God and to think that we're earning our salvation or earning spirituality, then we've crossed over into performance and legalism. So I hope that helps. Michael has put up the link again. Um, Ashley Blurt. Hey, Ashley, it's good to see you. Um, and then I'll see you by faith, Ashley. Like I'm preaching by faith. I don't see any of you guys. Uh, Peter Frame says, how does the average Christian participate in the making of apprentices of Jesus? Again, great question, Peter. So, Peter, every Paul 
uh, I, I do men's groups and men's teachings and, and men's talks. And one of them is on, on mentors and friends. And I teach in there the pattern of Paul. Paul had a Barnabas, a companion friend who was his buddy and, and colleague. But Paul also had a Timothy who was a, a spiritual son whom he was mentoring and training. And Paul also, in his life, at a certain point, had a mentor. So all of us, the ordinary, every Christian, we should all be under leadership learning from, together with one or two genuine buddies and companions where we are mutually apprenticing one another to Jesus, and all have one or two younger ones that we intentionally meet with and, and, and encourage them in their spiritual formation. So I would say every average Christian, if they have the Pauline model in their mind, should ask three questions. Am I, being, am I submitting myself to spiritual formation by learning by, from senior, wiser others with perhaps a once a month or twice every second, at least biweekly or monthly meetings? Am I meeting with one or two companions for mutual apprenticeship? And am I meeting with one or two people whom I've drawn into a relationship where they want to learn from me and grow? If all Christians had that mindset and engagement, we would actually be making disciples while being disciples. Um, that paper on soul care, Raylene is asking for. So I, I, uh, I'll have to send it to to Michael Munson, and he can send it out if you ask him. Please, could I receive the paper? Thank you. Jody says, how do we encourage people to value the daily disciplines over the experience, instant supernatural miracles, the feel-good, dramatic God experience over the hard work of doing the work of true discipleship? So again, um, just to say, Jody. In my book, Doing Spiritually, I talk a lot about that, is that power encounter in terms of su the supernatural signs and wonders don't change the heart in terms of character transformation. Character transformation is progressive formation through responding to God's grace in and through spiritual practices. And so people who rely on power encounter to change them, to become like Jesus, um, it's, it's not a correct um, New Testament understanding of spiritual transformation. So it's sad that if you get hooked on the charismania and the charismata, and we think that's the magic or the silver bullet that's going to change everything, we really will be disillusioned. But equally, if we think that spiritual disciplines and doing becoming great spiritual gymnastics will change everything equally, we end up uh, making the means an end in itself as a pride um, of, of how spiritually fit we are. So it's always a package deal of the and and the both and not the either or. Feel free to email me. Yeah. So Michael is saying if you email Michael on that email address, then I will get the document to Michael and any other documents. Um, so uh, this is so good. Hazel says I'm in 
um, into strength training and running, and I can easily see the similarities, benefits. Between. So Hazel, if you're into physical fitness, <laughs> is it great? They work together. I always say the Trinity that I've had to uh, come to understand in my life and keep watch over. My daily physical exercises to be fit for life in my body and mind and emotions and my daily spiritual exercises to be fit for life with God and I watch what I eat. It's physical and my spiritual and my diet. We are what we eat. So um, absolutely true. And once again, I talk a lot about that, Hazel, in the book, Doing Spirituality. It's available on Amazon. Uh, this is Kairos uh, Alia says, oh, from Sweden, these past days teachings have been like water to my soul. Ah, wonderful. God bless you. And Sue says, I sense that the usual emphasis on church planting, growing congregations and church activity actually diverts us from the primary objectives of formation and disciple making. What do you think? Sue, good question. It can divert us from the essential uh, commission to make disciples of Jesus. But the question is how we do church planting, how we work at evangelism and church growth, how we do world mission that will actually determine if we take our eye off the ball of spiritual formation. So it's not that we do it. It's how we do it. And if it becomes the all-consuming pursuit of church growth, church success, and church planting, then we end up using people to achieve our goals, which is deeply unspiritual. It's not, this, it's not the way of Jesus. So um, you're right, and there's a tension and a balance there. Um, I'm just looking for a question. There are a lot of comments here. Uh, oh, here's a question from Mari or Marie, if we can only make disciples to the extent that we are growing disciples, what then are the implications upon what we call leadership training? So again, helpful question. We must do leadership training and leadership equipping. But even that, the person who does the leadership training and equipping, if they themselves are genuine examples and models of discipleship leadership, of real passionate disciples of Jesus, and they give leadership in whichever area of ministry, whether it's small group training or evangelism or healing on the streets or whatever, that communicates in and through the leadership training where people actually do become passionate disciples in that particular area of ministry. So it's still uh, it, it still is, it still means the same thing and it still is effective to the extent we ourselves are, are modeling and living it, we impart it and communicate it through whatever structure or mechanism, leadership training, small group training, this or that. So one last question. Um, did, was there a question? Have I missed anything? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, is is the case of the radical middle? Uh, I'm not too sure what you are asking. Is the case the radical middle? Yeah, 
So between these either-ors, we must do both and, which is the radical middle. And look, dear friends, it just goes on and on and on, and I cannot uh, uh, answer all the questions, and I think I'm going to submit to my leader. Tim, you are my leader. I submit to you, and we draw this to a close. Lord Jesus, once again, what a joy to be in your presence with all my brothers and sisters. And I speak blessing on each one of them. Thank you for everyone who's participated in the seminar. And Lord, may your grace be with them and motivate them to put effort and energy into their spiritual formation to become more and more like Jesus. For God's sake and for the world's sake. Amen.